This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number six, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about proximate causation. Proximate causation is not only an element of negligence, it is a requirement for torts generally, including, for example, the intentional torts of battery trespass to land, and trespass to chattels, as well as strict liability. For now, we will be talking about proximate causation in the context of negligence. But when you move on to considering other tort causes of action, the same doctrine of proximate causation will apply. To meet the requirement of proximate causation, the plaintiff must show that the causal chain from the defendant's breach of duty to the injury suffered was not too attenuated or indirect. The point of proximate causation is that it places some outer bound on the scope of a defendant's liability for any given tortious act. Generally, the touchstone is some version of foreseeability. If the plaintiff's injury is foreseeable at the time of the defendant's duty-breaching conduct, then proximate causation is usually satisfied, although the details of the doctrine get considerably more complex. Actual causation is a matter of strict logical cause-and-effect relationships. The element of proximate causation, on the other hand, is a judgment call about how long or attenuated the cause-and-effect relationship is. Proximate means close. The label gets at the question of how close the breach of duty and injury are. The breach and injury need not be close in space or close in time. They could take place many miles and many days apart but the breach and injury must be somehow close along the chain of causation that links one to the other. Just as actual causation goes by many names, proximate causation also has multiple labels. Proximate cause is sometimes called legal cause and sometimes scope of liability. The different labels have developed largely because many commentators believe proximate causation is confusing.
Some critics of the label say that proximate causation is misleading because geographical proximity of the incident and injury is not required under the doctrine. Neither is proximity in time. Others criticize the label proximate causation because they say the doctrine has nothing to do with causation. That, however, depends on how you define causation. Other labels that are used for proximate causation include legal causation. The term gets the idea that the doctrine is an artificial limitation on the natural causal chain, a limitation that is construed to exist by law. The downside of legal causation as a label is that it sounds like it is the legal side of factual causation, and that is not the case. The term legal causation also makes it sound like the doctrine is in the hands of the judge as a legal question rather than in the hands of the jury as a factual issue. In fact, generally the opposite is true. Proximate causation is frequently taken to be mostly a factual issue for resolution by the jury. Scope of liability is another label. As a term of art, scope of liability avoids the problems people have with proximate causation and legal causation. A problem, however, is that scope of liability does not sound like a term of art. Having considered these different labels, the bottom line is that you need to be cognizant that when a court or commentator is talking about the concept of proximate causation, those words might or might not appear in the text. Perhaps even more frustrating, you must be aware of the opposite problem. Courts often use the words proximate causation to refer to actual causation. This happens because a court will sometimes say proximate causation to mean causation in general, with the actual and proximate varieties put together. These complications can be extremely frustrating to someone studying torts, but keep reading and thinking actively. You will soon become sufficiently knowledgeable about the concepts that you can see through what the court is talking about no matter what labels are being used. Now moving to the relationship between proximate causation and duty of care. Viewing all of the elements of a prima facie case for negligence together, you will find considerable practical and conceptual overlap between the duty of care element and the proximate causation element. Both proximate causation and duty of care function to circumscribe in a somewhat arbitrary way, the range of situations where a plaintiff can recover from a defendant. In accomplishing this, both elements largely revolve around the idea of foreseeability. So why have both elements in the cause of action of negligence? What distinguishes the two? These are excellent questions. Conceivably, the elements of duty of care and proximate causation could be combined or one absorbed into the other. But for whatever historical reasons there might be, 
negligence law developed the way it did. And we have the two elements. Regardless of whether it is ideal to have duty of care and proximate cause separated, it is possible to articulate some helpful distinctions between the elements as they exist in modern negligence law. First, the elements of duty of care and proximate causation can be distinguished in that they look at the injury-producing incident from different perspectives. The duty of care element gets at the question, when must you be careful? Proximate causation asks the question, assuming you weren't careful, just how much are you going to be liable for? Ultimately, the most important difference between the duty of care element and the proximate causation element is that the duty of care element is distinct to the negligence cause of action while the concept of proximate causation finds applicability across tort law, showing up as a general requirement for recovering compensatory damages. Proximate causation is also a prima facie element of other causes of action, that is, strict liability. This difference is probably the most convincing reason for keeping the two elements doctrinally separate. The requirement of proximate causation is needed for the other tort causes of action to prevent senseless results. Thus, while duty of care and proximate causation have a great deal of overlap, neither can be done away with without completely restructuring our entire system of tort doctrine. Today, foreseeability is the touchstone for the proximate causation analysis. To apply the foreseeability test, you take an imaginary trip back in time to the point at which the defendant is about to breach the duty of care. You then look forward and ask, what might go wrong here? Perhaps the leading case on using foreseeability to determine proximate causation is Overseas Tank Ship UK Limited versus Mort's Dock and Engineering Company, a case which is better known as Wagon Mound Number 1. In Wagon Mound Number 1, the steamship Wagon Mound was docked in the port of Sydney, Australia. Owned by Caltex, a venture of what is today Chevron, the Wagon Mound was discharging its cargo of gasoline and taking on oil to use as fuel for its engines. During this operation, the wagon mound spilled a large amount of fuel oil into the water. Caltex made no attempt to disperse the oil, and the wagon mound soon unberthed and went on its way. Within a few hours, the wagon mound's oil had spread over a substantial portion of the bay and had become thickly concentrated near the property of Mort's Dock, a ship-repairing business that was doing welding that day on the Coromel. Some bits of molten metal from the welding operation fell into the water and ignited some cotton waste that was floating on top of the oil. Of note, Sydney is one of the main ports for Australia's cotton exports. The burning cotton waste in turn ignited the oil, 
The ensuing fire burned a large portion of Mort's dock and the Coromel. The court made the finding that the defendant did not know and could not reasonably be expected to have known that fuel oil was capable of being set afire when spread on water. While this seems unbelievable, the court took pains to note that this finding was based on a wealth of evidence, including testimony of a distinguished scientist. The court stated, quote, The essential factor in determining liability is whether the damage is of such a kind as the reasonable man should have foreseen. It is a departure from this sovereign principle if liability is made to depend solely on the damage being the direct or natural consequence of the precedent act. Who knows or can be assumed to know all the processes of nature? But if it would be wrong that a man should be held liable for damage unpredictable by a reasonable man because it was direct or natural, equally, it would be wrong that he should escape liability however indirect the damage, if he foresaw or could reasonably foresee the intervening events which led to its being done. Thus, foreseeability becomes the effective test. End quote. Since it was held unforeseeable that spilling a large quantity of fuel oil could lead to a destructive fire, Caltex won for want of proximate causation. Another related test that can be applied is the harm within the risk test. Here, proximate cause is a question of germaneness. Is the kind of harm suffered by the plaintiff the kind that made the defendant's action negligent in the first place? The harm within the risk test can be thought of as a way of focusing and re-articulating the foreseeability test. Now moving to the objects of foreseeability. The foreseeability concept does a lot to illuminate what is meant with the doctrine of proximate causation. But foreseeability needs some additional elaboration. In particular, we need to scrutinize exactly what is being focused on in the foreseeability inquiry. Is proximate causation wanting if the plaintiff is unforeseeable? Or what if it is the type, manner, or extent of harm that is unforeseeable? The general rule is that if the plaintiff is unforeseeable, then proximate causation will not be satisfied. That is, if it was unforeseeable that the plaintiff could have been injured by the accused conduct, then the defendant wins because proximate causation fails. Now let us assume we have a foreseeable plaintiff, meaning a plaintiff who could be foreseeably harmed by the defendant's conduct. But let's suppose that the type of harm suffered is a surprise. Does the unforeseeability of the type of harm cause a failure of proximate causation? Probably the best that can be said about this is that there is really no general rule. Instead, courts look at this on a case-by-case basis. 
Now let's assume that we have a foreseeable plaintiff injured by a foreseeable type of harm, but the manner of the harm is somehow surprising and unforeseeable. The general rule in such cases is that an unforeseeable manner of harm does not preclude recovery on the basis of proximate causation. There is, however, some flexibility in this doctrine. If the manner of harm is truly extraordinary, then the proximate causation limitation might be engaged. What if it is the extent of the harm that is unforeseeable? Suppose someone in the cafeteria playing around throws a small bottle of water to a friend. A bystander is struck and killed. Did the thrower proximately cause the bystander's death? The general rule is that an unforeseeable extent of harm will not cause a failure of proximate causation. Alternatively stated, under the eyes of the law, the extent of the harm, no matter how great, is considered to be foreseeable, even if it really is not. This doctrine is called the eggshell plaintiff rule. Named for a hypothetical plaintiff who has a skull as thin as an eggshell, for whom a slight tap on the head could cause massive brain damage. This doctrine is quite strictly applied in personal injury cases. With property damage, however, there is some loosening of the rule, so that foreseeability and harm within the risk test might be applied to provide a proximate cause limitation on liability even in cases where the causal connection is tight. And finally, superseding causes. By definition, a superseding cause is an intervening cause that breaks the proximate cause relationship. The term is conclusory. A court does not determine whether or not something is a superseding cause in order to find out whether it breaks the proximate cause connection. Rather, the court decides whether or not an intervening cause breaks the proximate cause relationship, and if it does, then it is called a superseding cause. The doctrine of superseding cause comes up when, after the defendant has undertaken some negligent conduct, something else comes along that gives the court or jury the sense that the something else is the cause of the plaintiff's injury. Technically, as we discussed with regard to actual causation, there is no such thing as the cause. Every event has a virtually infinite number of causes, so no single one can be the cause. Nonetheless, the doctrine of superseding cause is invoked when circumstances exist such that it just seems wrong to hold the defendant liable. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.